Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Before we begin this episode, I'm happy to share a positive update concerning Shelley Filipov's legal situation. As we heard in episode two of this series, Shelley had been facing a series of charges related to cocaine and firearms offenses. But fortunately, that's all behind her now. On Wednesday, the 23rd of November, 2016, all charges against Shelley Filipov had been withdrawn. Despite many nasty online commentators disagreeing with me, I never believed these charges or any alleged criminal activity by a Filipov family member had any connection to Emma's disappearance. And I'm just happy that this is all behind Shelly and she's able to continue to focus on her search for Emma. If anyone is interested in more info on this legal update, I've added some relevant links in the episode notes. But I have nothing else to say on the matter, so let's get to the episode. According to the police officer I spoke to, they went through a list of questions in order to ascertain whether or not she was safe and determined that she was okay to be on her own on the streets of Victoria, barefoot in November, and they left her there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. You are listening to Emma Filipoff is Missing, a series by The Nighttime Podcast. When I look back at the first three episodes in this series, I feel Emma Filipoff's story is slowly being revealed, but what I see floating to the surface is a bit different than I'd expected. Throughout this series, we primarily focused on the details of her disappearance and her activity in the days and weeks that immediately preceded it. Of course, this period of time is incredibly important and certainly critical if one hopes to find Emma or learn her fate. But there's a big problem. Emma's activities in this time leading up to her disappearance seem as airy and as open to interpretation as the poetic wordplay she filled her journals with. My opinion is that the most direct route to understanding Emma's story is by understanding the 26-year-old woman who stood shoeless and disoriented on a busy intersection in Victoria on November 28, 2012. Although in the past we did discuss her personality in a basic sense, I feel I'm still a long ways from understanding Emma. And as this series takes its next steps, I hope to change that. In the next four episodes of the series, we'll be joined by four people who are very close to Emma during different points in her life. As they share their memories of Emma, I believe an accurate portrait will emerge. But with it, her slowly degrading mental health will become painfully obvious. I'll be releasing these episodes in a sort of chronological order, starting with her childhood best friend and leading up to a young man she befriended while living in a state of near homelessness in Victoria just prior to her disappearance. So let's get to it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime's Emma Filipoff is Missing series, our guest is Emma's childhood best friend, Ellen. I'm Ellen, and I'm a 
close long-term friend of Emma's. We we grew up together in the same small town. Do you recall even roughly when you first met her? Yeah, so the way that things work in in our town is that there's a number of really small schools all outside of the main town of Perth. And when students hit grade five, they start getting bussed into town for the students. So when we were in grade five, Emma transferred from the smaller sort of more rural school she was at into the the public school in Perth. So we would have been in grade grade five, which is, I don't know, maybe 12 years old. Can you, can you describe getting to know her and maybe telling me what led you to become so close? Yeah. So actually when Emma came to the school, we hated each other. Um, we're very, very different people. So she was at that sort of life stage. She was, she was very feminine. Um, and I was the complete opposite. I was, uh, really, really into playing soccer, baseball, and and really any sport that I could play. But like, if you can imagine, essentially, I was like the kid with scraped up knees and would come home kind of like with dirt in my hair from like whatever I got up to at recess. And she was like, mm-hmm, like quite pristine, well-dressed and, uh, and, uh, and really kind of put together. Yeah. So this is quite opposites at the time. Yeah. What do you what do you think it was that led you to get along so great and eventually become such close friends? You know, I don't know why it happened, but we were in the same in the same class together, and our teacher sent us both across the hall to work in this little room, like you know, about five feet by five feet. It was like a u- a room used for for the canteen. So for selling sort of snacks at lunch, but we ended up having to go over there for a little bit every day to, to do some work. And at some point we started singing in that room and we just got hooked on the way our voices sounded in that room. Neither of us were singers, neither of us sang in public or had any interest in doing that, but we started going over into the singing room every day, which is what we what we called it and requesting to get sent over there. So, you know, convincing our teacher that actually the best work was done when the two of us could go over into that room and, (laughs) and sing. (laughs) I guess this would have been at the end of elementary or junior high school at this point. Yeah. So our schools went um, like kindergarten to grade eight and then, and then straight into high school. During this part of, of Emma's life, like during high school, can you describe her personality and maybe like the kind of things she would do together when you were spending time? Yeah. I spent some time today reflecting on and thinking about our friendship at that time. And I think the best way I can describe it is that our friendship brought out our silliest selves differing from other relationships we had and who we were expected to be as students we when we got together we were ridiculous and silly and sort of took any excuse to play or to dress up or to sing um we we at some point started this narrative that actually we were twins separated at birth and and our parents were I really don't know where this came from, but our parents were actually Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, who were like fairly big movie stars at the time. And and this was like the big secret that no one knew. 
So we would make up these stories and these worlds and these games. I think that really captures who she was then. Quite silly. But there also was the other side to her, which is that she's always been a very artistic person, both through like photography and drawing and writing poetry. And that was always kind of the quieter, private side of her. Um, and that was kind of her her alone time. Um, you said it was more in her private, quiet time. Was Publicly, was she like that? Like, was she the type that was often talking about, you know, her poetry and sharing her artwork or whatnot? Or was this something that she just kind of went off on her own and did? I would sometimes get to read her writing because we were in class together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at that time, she would have to write pieces for English class or we had to write poetry for English class. And so then I would be like, maybe a little more pretty to it. But, but I think... I think it was mostly something that she did on her own for herself. So Emma lived with you for for a period of time, I understand. I think during high school. Can can you describe that and maybe tell me what led to it? Sure. I think that actually all through elementary school and and into high school, we actually we both spent a lot of time at each other's houses. So our house was was kind of always always that spot with an with an open door. And then what what uh, what happened when when we were about sixteen, which we thought we were more like twenty one, we were we were sure we had everything figured out, and only really in hindsight can I recognize that actually we were still kids at that time. Um, Emma really didn't want to have anything to do with curfews or rules around where she could be and when she could be there. And so she decided that she was going to move out of her parents' house. She told them that she really didn't want a curfew and they really wanted her to have that, that safety around her of things like a curfew. Um, so she decided she was moving out and the, the natural place for her to go was to come to my house. And so even though I'm sure her parents were scared about her deciding to to move out it it actually was probably probably the safest place and a comfort for them to know that she was with us which meant that Shelly could call up my mom and and ask you know how things were going or she could call up and talk to Emma Um, but it also meant that she now was just under someone else's rules very similarly my mom wanted to to keep her safe and so enforce the curfew and so it wasn't it wasn't too long that until she decided to get her own apartment in town the average 16 year old would have issues with curfew and rules and whatnot but it would be unusual to to actually leave the house at the time did you remember her her, like any specific reason she had such a difficult time dealing with with the curfew or was she just i'm just thinking like was she someone who was very rebellious or was there some other reason she had such a hard time dealing with it it's a little hard to pull it apart now because so much time has passed but honestly i think it was pretty regular teenage stuff which is that she felt really strongly about being able to have her independence she felt really strongly about um, being able to stay out all night if she chose to. So I think this was fairly typical. And, and you're right, it's, it's a bit atypical to actually follow through 
but also the follow through was to this this safety net you already had, right? Um, follow through was to this this house that you had spent a lot of time. She had you know really strong relationships with my parents and and with my sister as well. Um, and so so it wasn't too much of a jump. Yeah, um, it was already kind of set up, so it wasn't that big of a deal for her to go with. It. Like, I guess it would have been a big deal if it was anyone other than your family. Yeah, and so I would say the bigger jump was to actually go and, and get an apartment. That was, you know, none of our other friends at 16 had an apartment. When I think back at it, I think that, I think that after she got her own apartment, she missed some of the aspects of a family home like the the philipoff's family home was mm, warm and lively and full so there's um four kids and they always had friends there like i remember thinking that's the type of home that i see on tv so speaking of that point, can you describe Emma's relationship with her family and, and as well as how she described her relationship with her family to you? Emma's relationship with her family was was that she had a different relationship with each individual member of the family. So she like connected on different things. She had different jokes. They also like came together as a unit, but it was it was always neat to watch those relationships and they you know, since I have known her since we were so young, then those relationships have changed as well. Um, you know, as her as her younger brothers got older and they you know switched from being sort of that sibling to to developing friendships. Um, I think that that Shelley's has spoken about him as well, but in particular Emma's relationship with her youngest brother was quite maternal. She was quite a bit older and so she had a, a maternal like bond with him that she really wanted to like care for him and he had you know when he would have his the, the place that he practiced karate would have bring your parent to karate night and and he would bring Emma and I um because because we just you know we loved doing those kind of things with him and we would take him to Every time a Harry Potter movie came out, we would we would take him to the theater and like try to bring one of his friends as well. But just they had a really a really strong a really strong connection, and and I think with her with her dad, she shared a lot of her artistic side. So he's an artist, and and I think she always really respected and and looked to him to to share that part of her um, and her mom was very involved in our day-to-day -day life so her mom was a teacher at the school that we went to um, together from grade five to grade eight and she was our teacher and and quite present and um, you know someone who was really involved in the in the day-to-day now, uh, you would have been close with Emma during the, the time that her parents separated. Now, many people look to this as uh, as kind of a turning point in, in Emma's life. I'm just wondering if you can talk about, the, about how Emma reacted with her parents' separation and maybe if you could share something, anything she would have told you about that or how she spoke about it. 
I think it was a big upset for her. I think that it was hard for her to know where she should be and what she should do and just changed some of the, you know, some of the things that had stayed sort of the same and stable throughout her life, like her parents living in their in their family home outside of town. Um, I think that that the the change in itself was was a big upset. I think it was scary and confusing for her. Can you describe how her personality changed over the years and maybe give, maybe give some examples of times that you remember noticing this gradual change? Right from when we were quite young, Emma was a, a private person. Um, so she had a lot of people close to her and the people that were close to her, she, she trusted. Um, she, kept, um, she kept journals. When she was quite young and that was always something that was that was quite private like differing from her coming into my world and coming into my room and sort of everything was fair game that's something that i never would have done is to go into her room and um, open her art book or open up one of her journals without her even having to say that it was it was really it was really quite clear that there were that there was that was that was a line and that she had had elements of her life that was that was just for her and then i now pull out these these shifts when i look back where uh, i would say that need for privacy got bigger she she actually had less and less stuff as she got older uh you hear a lot of people talking about these these jeans that she wore that she just Every time they would get a hole, she would she would patch them, and she loved her pants. They were part of her story, like something that was with her always. And and I would say she started to to keep few things, but keep them really close to her. So she would almost always have her her backpack on, and and in it she would really have her important things. Um, and so to me, that time was a shift when like a need for privacy, which I think we all, we all have and, and, and have private things um, sort of started to, to tip over into what feels more like secrecy. And she sort of tightened her circle around her. So in more in her adult years, she, if she told me, what she was going to do the next day. She would often remind me and remind me too many times uh, to not tell anyone. For example, she would say like, oh, tomorrow I'm going to go to the quarry with my dad, but don't tell anyone, okay? Uh, to the point that, that it, it, it felt funny. Honestly, it felt, it felt frustrating to me. I would, I would sort of quip back, like, who am I going to tell and who cares? But she really needed to say it. And, and I would say those were like the first, uh, the first signs of it being 
more than just regular need for privacy. Mm-hmm. It was it specific to being private about where she was going to be and what she was thinking, or was it all aspects of her life she just wanted to, I guess, keep to herself and her close circle? All definitely most aspects of her life. I remember we went to the movies one day. It probably was with her her youngest brother, but we went to the movies and we were going into the movie, and then she got it in her head that her that she left her car unlocked. And I didn't want to go back to the car, but she was insistent on it. So we had to go back to the car and check, double check that it was locked. And and it felt like she was really worried about her things in the car. Not because they had financial value, but because they were like, they were hers and they were, they were private. So I'd say a lot around um, sort of the, the security of the things she needed to live her life, which was you know, her, her couple articles of clothing and, you know, some toiletries and maybe a passport. You know, I, I actually don't know exactly what she kept in her bag. Sometimes she kept um, a stuffed animal she had had since she was a baby, which I know made it all the way to Victoria. She still had this terribly ugly, stinky, you know, hugged until it's got no fluff left in it, uh, stuffed animal. So these were the things that she kept really close and, and kept in her backpack and, and really were, you know, nothing that as a friend, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just like go into her backpack to find something that would, that would feel like I'm sort of, you know, walking into a locked room, you know, really invading on her space. Not that she would have to tell me that it just, it just felt that way. Interesting. Now getting to, to Julian, I, uh, some people will talk about his relationship with Emma, maybe leading to her suffering from such extreme paranoia. Paranoia, but it it sounds to me she, she was showing some traits of being paranoid before being involved with Julian or meeting Julian. Does, does that is that accurate to say? I think so. I think that I think that it was definitely something that was uh, coming out more and more. Uh, is these feelings of of uh, the need for privacy, which which now in hindsight feel a lot more like paranoia to me. Um, and I don't really know what what part Julian played in it because I, I really wasn't there. Uh, I do know that that people were mesmerized by her. They were really drawn into her, and and I hear that from from what I've heard him say um, is, is she really did have that, that, that charm that sort of drew people to want to be around her in any capacity. Now, what do you remember about her move to, to British Columbia? Do you recall, do you recall this time and, and why she did go there? She originally moved out West to go to school on Vancouver Island. And actually my, my older sister, who was, also very close with Emma, drove out west with her. And I was uh, at university in Waterloo. And so they drove from Perth to Waterloo and then stopped over for a few days. And it was quite a funny time. It was right before Emma's birthday. And she's never she's never really been big on birthdays. And so they they were on this on this mission to avoid her birthday altogether. And so they came, they were kind of hiding out in Waterloo and we were, um, you know, doing a lot of cooking together and hanging out. And, and there was this undecided date that they were going to continue on their way. And, 
the other quite funny thing about the trip is that actually Emma had to do a calculus course before she was eligible for the school that she was enrolled in, which was uh, like a cooking school to become a chef. Um, and so, so on this journey that they were taking, they also were studying and my sister was helping her through her calculus program. And actually, I think a lot of that, I think Shelly was backing some of that. She was, she was really interested in, in, uh, in my sister helping Emma to get this calculus done. And so she was, she was a big encouragement of this trip. Now, when Emma was, was out West, be it in Vancouver at school or, or in Victoria, how did you stay in touch? Was it, you know, telephone calls, chatting on the internet? Uh, what were your conversations like? There, sometimes she would call me, but, uh, but we mostly connected through email. Her emails were often written in poem and were somewhat cryptic. So, it was a little hard to know how they connected with actually what her life looked like there. Can you give an example of the, the type of email you would have gotten from Emma? Yeah, I was looking at them today and thinking about this. And one of them was, was about uh, being at the School of Duel, she called it. And it was uh, a school where people went to learn how to sword fight. But she just wrote me this this long cryptic poem about... Uh, Princess Bride, which is a movie we both really liked, and and learning how to recreate the scene because it's something we would throughout our life just recreate the scenes of that movie, and we sort of knew it word for word. And so she just sent me a poem all about that um, and about going to one of the classes. So she would within these poems, she would actually describe you know what her her day to day was like, or describe an, an event in her life. Yeah. Do you want to hear a bit of one? I would love to. Okay, so this one says, Hey man, oh, I don't know. I'm on the island on a great journey. Learning, learning, learning. Writing, reading, painting, creating, seeing, dreaming. Every day is a surprise. Every day I find treasures and truths. And life is strange and life is beautiful. How are you? How's your brain? So long as one day we're able to sword fight again. Love you, dude. Miss you. And when when did she write you that? That was uh, very end of May in 2012. And, and, you know, in hindsight now, I know she was staying at a shelter at that time. I don't know, right at that time, but uh, around that time anyways. Through these emails that she sent you, did you see or could you tell that her mental health seemed to be deteriorating? No, it wasn't obvious in the emails. She did come home a couple of times since she moved out west that first time. And I would say that it was more obvious in her coming home, but really not to the extent that like that I know now. Mm-hmm. You know, and it does feel it feels like it feels like she knew who would know and and stayed quite far away. In hindsight, is is that what you think she was doing in, in Victoria kind of just hiding out from everybody kind of to keep her, what she was suffering from private. I don't know if it's the only thing that she was doing out there. Um, but I think, I think that's part of it. So um, the last message you had read to me from the, the email from Emma, I think you said was around May of 2012 leading up to November, ultimately when she disappeared from Victoria, 
were her messages seemingly um, different in tone or, or, or can you describe kind of the, the last messages she would have received from Emma leading up to her disappearance? Yeah, that, that was my last email from her. What, what you had just read to me was, was the last and that was that in May, did you say? Yeah, very end of May. Were people in touch with her leading up to November? No. And and really, it would, from home, it would likely be my sister or I. We sort of stayed really close with her. And and so it would it would be us and, and we hadn't heard anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think mostly because she didn't reach out. I think a lot of things she kept inside of her. Now, could you describe what you recall from initially after her disappearance? Like maybe tell me about first learning of, of Shelley's search for Emma. So the morning that I found out, I actually, I was, I was in grad school at the time and I was only maybe a month and a half in and it was a Saturday morning, I guess. And I was going into the lab. I had lab access hours and, uh, and I got a phone call from another really good friend of ours who, who grew up just down the road from Emma. And she, and she said, Emma's missing. And I immediately, I was like, what? I don't understand. Like, I'm just running out the door. I kind of like, I both didn't understand and I feel like I, I didn't really know where to put what she was saying. So, so she actually, she told me to go to the computer and to, to Google Emma. And then all the news articles started coming up of, of her being missing. And then that's where it it started to sort of feel real, but actually I still, I got my lab coat and I got picked up by a friend and I went into the lab because it felt like there was nothing else that I could do Um, and sort of went through my day a bit like a zombie, um, just sort of taking steps forward in order to to try to sort out in my head what this could mean. Would it have been in her personality to just, you know, just disappear off the grid? Uh, So Emma was both. Uh, a very transient person in that she liked to go where she wanted to go when she wanted to go. It sounds just like when she was 16 and had a curfew. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but it really, that was, that was, you know, a consistent characteristic of her. It was partially a 16 year old, but, but even as an adult, she, she really wanted to take opportunities as they came up and, and go and do it. And so for that, that first little while I thought like a friend came along and offered her to go out on, on the boat for a week and she took it. You know, I played through all these ideas in my head because selfishly, as I got more and more worried for her, I also got worried that she would just show up the next week and that, that I'd be furious with her. And as much as she was a transient person and liked to be able to go where she wanted, when she wanted, she actually always has been grounded to some relationships. Like she's never not told people 
and so it it's it's this you know it's the the two sides to everything right is that yes she was transient but also she cared really deeply in the relationships that she had and knew knew people cared about her and worried about her and and, and would need to know these things during the time that that Shelley was was searching for Emma were you involved in the search at all yeah so I was in this grad program at the same time and so I was anchored to to Kingston and so both my sister and I did a lot of of the online stuff so Shelley knew she could call us to ask for anything and so she would tell us what needed to get done and and then we would do sort of the the back end of it and then as soon as I had a break in school which was was in the winter it was you know a, a winter break uh, my sister and I flew out west and went and sort of did our own search on on the island uh, based on sort of where Shelley had been and where she had heard things and we sort of went and tracked down a couple of a couple of tips that had come in and and actually we just we went to every library and thrift shop that we could get to on the island and put up posters and talk to people and you know met people who had who had sent in information and, and did it that way but then when the week was done I had to be back at school and my sister had to be back home as well and so so we came back and and uh, now I just still do whatever Shelley needs. Some people believe that it's likely that Emma's living a transient life somewhere, just not wanting to be found. You, you've already commented on it on it a bit, but knowing her as well as you do, can you picture her being off on her own this long without reaching out to her family or her younger brother or yourself? I can't. I can't imagine her. You know, not not sending an email, not calling. You know, uh, both of our families have had actually the same landline phone number for as long as as we've lived. Right? These aren't like they're not uh, they don't change. And so, without reaching out, the the other side to that is that I think that she was really unwell, and it's hard to know when your mental state has changed. Like. It's hard to know what you would know and what you wouldn't know. So I can't imagine sort of, you know, not after four years, right? The like, whatever's fun in, in running off and, and going on an adventure, too much time has passed. I didn't think that's what she did in the first place, but I was always, I was always playing around with the different ideas in my head. Um, whenever I have dreams about Emma, it's that she's just gone on an adventure and she comes back and she's, you know, completely confused by everything that's happened. And I'm so, so furious in my dreams. In real life, I don't think that's possible. You know, in, in your home with with your family, how often is it that Emma's brought up? I'm, I'm assuming it, you must constantly have have it play the story playing out in your mind. How often is this something you're talking about now, almost four years later? Um, a lot. I don't, I don't live in, in Perth anymore, but I would say every time I'm home, we talk about it. My mom thinks about it every day. My dad, probably the same. 
you know, my sisters and I, like, we talk about it and when anything kind of comes up or changes, we'll, we'll let each other know about it. But like, you know, not, there's not that much, there's not that much that's changed. Um, I think we all think about her all the time. What do you think most likely has become of Emma? I don't know. And I think, I think it's fair to say that anybody who knows her doesn't know. Um, because it, in my, in my head, I, it's almost like, it's almost like I have a pro con list for each of the options and, and each of the options has as many things on the possibility side as not possible. So none of them stand out as, as the most likely. And, and you add in, um, you know, what we, what we believe is, is mental illness and the, a mental breakdown. And, and it just throws all the pieces up in the air again. Um, and you add in this, you know, this magnetism that she, she had you know just just the desire for people to to get to know her better and all the pieces get thrown up again now this this pro and con list you have of, of some of the different scenarios could you tell me a few kind of scenarios and things that in your mind that would make them impossible yeah so the the first one being being around you know the transient lifestyle um and and the things that that are for it are, you know, her, her desire for a journey, her desire to be in the moment, um, and, and go with, with that moment and what she's feeling. And the cons are just the relationships she has in her life, the relationships with her family, with her siblings, with my family, with her other friends as well. Like she has, gone on adventures for a long time and she always lets us know the the really big one on that side as well is that like she kept her important possessions close to her and and she left those things in her van you know things like her passport uh this is something that she would keep on her even if she had no intention of leaving the country because it's like it's a it's a security of knowing that you could in um, in your it's mind a security of like keeping those keeping those those items really close um she she carried this overly used stuffed animal with her you know that she'd been carrying since i think she got it when she was about five years old and she left that behind. You know, these are these are her possessions. Um, these are the things that are like that that are stand-ins for um, her people, and are also her her ways out of situations. You know, money, passport, uh, ID. These are like the things you don't separate yourself from. And so that's 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 a definitely a big one. Um, 
in terms of her committing suicide, the, you know, it's very, very hard to judge in terms of like just not knowing what her mental state was. On the other side, people who know her, you know, I think everyone has kind of agreed that it, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit with her. And there are just these back and forths for each one. But ultimately now going on four years since she, she was last seen, you, you're still scratching your head in the middle, not sure which is most likely. Absolutely. I think, I think it gets harder to, it gets harder to believe that she left on her own will as years go on. It's also hard to think that that she, there wouldn't be any change in her in her mental state, you know, that she wouldn't know who she was, where she was. As as time goes on, I worry about her being taken against her will, and I worry about her being, you know, so mentally unwell that she wandered into a situation, even like into the, you know, into into the woods or something and, and wasn't able to get herself out. Is there anything else you want to share with people who haven't had the chance to meet Emma? Anything you could share with us to give us a better idea of, of the type of person she was and the type of personality she has? I, so I listened to all the all your episodes today in, in kind of thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, like I listened to the one with Julian and like he actually describes her quite well. As he's saying this, I'm kind of like nodding along, like kind of, you know, laughed out at one part or, or two because it's, you know, he he describes her and he describes even like her at her dad's house, like very accurately, better than I would be able to. The hardest thing to convey is that Emma is a whole lot of different things. I'm always trying to sort of paint the picture of of who she is. And, and it's so hard, you know, I say, oh, she was, you know, quite transient, but also very grounded by her relationships. And I think that, you know, she was silly and goofy and loving and also private and secretive. And then we throw in, you know, paranoid, right? And, and the words just don't quite do justice to describe and explain who she is. And so I, I hope by, you know, you getting to talk to, to a couple of her friends that, that, that were able to sort of put more pieces of the puzzle together. And I think that it's, it's from getting those different perspectives that you start to kind of piece together both who she, who she is and also why it's so difficult to make any to make any guesses on on what happened if you're still with me i want to thank you for joining ellen and i for this revealing and intimate look at this formative part of Emma's life. Reflecting on the memories Ellen had shared, 
I'm left with a lot of feelings. But most of all, I just feel horrible that Ellen and the rest of Emma's loved ones are left without her and without an answer. But specific to Emma's personal story, what really stuck with me was hearing Ellen describe Emma's propensity towards secrecy, which Ellen described as bordering on paranoia. It's hard not to imagine that we're hearing about some of the early stages of whatever seemed to consume Emma's later life. Consider that as we move on through the upcoming episodes. The evolution of this secrecy, paranoia, and eccentric behavior seems to tell its own story. In the next episode, we're going to hear from another childhood friend of Emma's. However, this friend had a much closer look at Emma during her time in Victoria, B.C. Our next guest, Michaela, was the young woman who Emma lived with upon her arrival to Victoria. She wanted to be outside a lot, so she would go on these really long walks, like eight hours sometimes, um, all day, even sometimes at night for many hours. I was sort of curious about what she was doing on these really long walks. I remember um, she invited me once to come with her and she showed me uh, that she was walking down the streets of the suburbs in Victoria and um, taking all the leaves that had been piled by folks who'd raked up their lawns, that were taking all the leaves and spreading them everywhere. And she explained to me that for her, this was really important work that would help nature sort of regenerate, regrow. Yeah, I mean, that's how she was spending her time, and for her it was important that she do this. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of the nighttime series, Emma Filipoff is Missing. But before we wrap things up, I want to end with some thanks. First, and most significantly, I want to give a heartfelt thank you to Ellen. To simply refer to you as a friend of Emma's is a huge understatement. In speaking with you and speaking to others about Emma's relationship with you, you seem much more like a sister. I can't imagine how it must feel to have lost someone so dear to you, and I certainly can't imagine how it feels to speak about that loss. Ellen, I thank you for allowing me to provide a venue for you to share your memories. Next. A big thank you to Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical and ambient themes for this episode. And lastly, the biggest thanks of all goes out to everyone listening. Without you, the sun certainly would have rose on nighttime years ago. And for anyone out there who wants more nighttime, please consider supporting my Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then, for just a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show, in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit holes than you'll hear in the main episodes. You can join my Patreon and access the supporter content by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, but can't pitch in financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Equivalent. If you or if any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, 
and contact me on social media. Give me your theory on Emma Filipov's disappearance. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Somebody somewhere knows something. She didn't just disappear. She couldn't just vanish. Somebody has to know something, Jordan. Somebody has to know something.